Welcome to Authors of the Pacific Northwest, where we connect authors with new listeners and provide advice to aspiring authors on the business of writing. I'm your host, Vicki J. Carter. Hi there, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for coming back to the Authors of the Pacific Northwest. And today, um, I always say I'm very excited about bringing the author on, but today I feel like this is a treat. We have Stephen Allred on the podcast. So Stephen, say hi to my listeners. Hello, everybody out there. Well, I am super thrilled to have Stephen on. So a little background about how I found Stephen. Um, My listeners know Stephen in the last probably four weeks, I took a trip to Powell's Books because I live close to Portland, Oregon. And I did the Northwest um, book look. I looked for all of the authors I can find from the Pacific Northwest to keep bringing more authors on. And you were one that I found your book on the shelf. And I'm like, oh, I have to invite Stephen on. This is a great work. (laughs) So so uh, that's, that's terrific. Powell's has been very, very good to me on this book. Yeah, yeah, we love Powell. So, Stephen, tell us, um, my listeners like to know what state in the Pacific Northwest you reside in. Well, I live in Portland, Oregon. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm a lifelong Pacific Northwesterner, if you will. (laughs) I was born in Seattle, but I've lived in in and around Portland since Mm -hmm. about 1960. Gotcha. Well, you and you're probably seeing a lot of changes in your city, huh, in Portland. It's something oh, yes. We marvel at yeah. quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. we're close. Um, my husband and I are about 35, 45 minutes closer up north in Washington, um, southwest yeah. Washington. But we Portland's our city because we're closer to that than Seattle. And I spend a lot of time in Portland So and have seen the dramatic changes. <laughs> so. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, but it's still the this book city of books. I tell you, it's it's a quite the place to go if you're a reader. If well, you're Portland, yeah, Portland is an uh, just a wonderful town to be a writer in. It's a great book town. Um, I, I, people actually read books here still. Mm-hmm. Can you believe it? In the 21st century, and um, we have, uh, for example, a, a higher per capita library card. You know, more people per capita holding library cards than any other city in the country. Yep. Uh, that's one way, you know, we're a very literate city. And yep. there are just so many wonderful writers here and bookstores. Yeah. And They're really it just awesome. goes on and on. It is. Lots it is. Culture. It's a part of the charm of the Northwest for sure. And, and it's yeah. I'm very proud to say that I am a part of the Northwest writing community budding Northwest for me. I'm budding into the experience, <laughs> but haven't yeah. ever. But tell us a little bit. Um, so my readers that don't know about you yet, um, do you have a day job? Or are you one of the lucky writers that gets to be the writer full time? Kind of give us the genesis as um, going to writing for you. Well, I, I do have a day job. I'm a property manager. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been doing that for a long, long time. Uh, but I've also been writing, uh, pretty seriously uh, for about, oh gosh, 25, 20, 26 years, something like that. About the time I turned 40, I I really got serious about it. I had always been a dabbler before then. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, there's something about turning those big decade marking kind of birthdays, you know, 40, 50, that kind of thing. Um, And I got some encouragement from, from somebody at the time. And, uh, so I, I, I decided, okay, I've been thinking about this for my life up to this point. Why don't I do something about it? So I started taking workshops and um, and writing. 
I mean, those are the, the, the writing part of it is, of course, the key. You got to sit down and, and put some words down. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love it that you really became, you know, you feel like 40 was that marking point. So I'm, I'm getting close to my 50 <laughs> and, and yeah. I, I feel like I'm such a late bloomer with the whole writing thing. Like you, you I dabbled, you know, and I had a, for me, I had a family and I had to get my kids raised and all the kind of I dabbled here and there. But I, when I turned 45, I was like, now it's time to be serious. Either I was going to go back and get my doctorate or I was going to do something else. And I was getting antsy and my adoring husband said, why don't you just write? You're so fantastic at that. And I'm like, okay, great. Sounds like a plan. And so then the podcast started and then my writing life started. So it's been a good journey. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. And I think writing is something that is uh, relatively kind to late bloomers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, It's not like say you were trying to be an actor and uh, your youthful appearance might be important to your career. Exactly. Um, You know, as a writer, it's more, uh, gee, what have you lived? What have you experienced? What can you draw upon? Mm-hmm. That uh, that maybe favors somebody who's had got you know a couple decades under their belt as an adult. I think I think that's very true. At least for me, I feel calmer now as I'm working through the writing process. That I don't feel like I have to. I have a drive, but I don't have the same drive I would have had at 20. You know, it's like uh-huh. you know things can roll a little slower for me. That's okay. <laughs> Yeah. 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 So I'd love to ask, this is one of my little stumper questions. So tell me, tell the readers a little bit. We are told as, um, as writers, you know, be reading, always reading, read something. So what are you currently reading? Oh, I'm in the middle of, um, red, let's see, uh, black leopard, red wolf. If I got that right, red leopard, black wolf by, uh, Marlon James. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, um, it's a fantasy novel. You might think of it as um, a Tolkien set in Africa and drawing upon African uh, mythology and folklore. Uh, Marlon James is a Jamaican writer. He won the Man Booker Prize for his mm-hmm. previous book. And this is just uh, an incredibly rich fantasy with um, Fantastic creatures and beings in it, the like of which you've never encountered before. Mm. It's uh, quite a delight. Sounds interesting. Okay, so listeners, I'll make sure this is listed on the podcast notes. So then you got another book to add to your reading list, you know, (laughs) the the never ending reading list for us, right? (laughs) Oh, it is, isn't it? it? Um, So, Stephen, let's talk a little bit about your writing process. Um, You know, tell us us how how you start. I know you have two books published, correct? Yes, that is correct. Okay, so we'll talk about those titles and kind of the the aspects of each of those in a little bit. But um, I have a lot of listeners that are budding, aspiring authors. They're starting the process yeah. they're in the middle. Of it. And I love to know what your writing process is. Do you start out with an idea and then you do, you know, the planning and sit down and do the planning? Do you do you just write off a seat of your pants? How, how do you operate? Well, it's a mix. Um, and I have learned over the years what works for me. I, I, I do teach uh, writing. I have a workshop I run. I've run for over 20 years with uh, uh, my writing buddy, Joanna Rose. Um, that's called the Pinewood Table, and that meets here in Portland. I always tell people at the table, we each have to find our own way to, uh, to be a writer, that there's, the, there's no one-size-fits-all. When I was starting out, I took workshops, 
I studied with uh, Kim Stafford. I studied with Natalie Goldberg. Mm-hmm. I eventually landed in a workshop uh, run by uh, Tom Spanbauer, uh, where I stayed for a number of years. Um, and I learned things from each one of these writers, and I learned a tremendous amount from the other writers around the table. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I would try a lot of different things. Um, and and just uh, let the things that worked for me stick around. And if something didn't work for me, I, I learned to just let it go, mm-hmm. not to try and fulfill uh, everybody's expectations. Or uh, People have lots of great suggestions. It doesn't mean their suggestion is going to work for you. Mm-hmm. So, And I, I think in the beginning, I felt like, oh, I must do this and I must do that. Everybody says do it this way. Um, and I, I kind of learned to be uh, more of a pick and choose kind of a hunter-gatherer. Yes, uh, I like that. <laughs> what, you know, what, what works for me? What makes me want to sit down and put some words down? Um, so over time, what I've learned works for me is to get up early in the morning mm-hmm. Um uh, before, you know, the world comes crashing in mm-hmm. with all of its distractions and to try and uh, go relatively quickly from sleep to my desk. There's usually a cup of coffee in between there. <laughs> well, you're a Northwest <laughs> guy, right? At least one cup of yeah. coffee. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, but, I, you know, I like the quiet. Mm-hmm. I like... Uh, watching the light come into a room. I like that movement from night to <clears throat> dawn and morning. Um, I have little rituals. I have a prayer I've written that I say every morning oh, before I, I write. That's awesome. Um, I have, I light candles. This book, this novel, The Ale House at the End of the World, is set in a kind of alternate uh time stream, if you will, mm-hmm. but uh, something we, we recognize as more or less like the earth we know mm-hmm. at about 1500. Um, so kind of more sail punk than mm-hmm. uh, steampunk. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I started lighting a candle just for atmosphere while I was mm-hmm. writing because I wanted to put myself back in a time when we didn't have electric light sources. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I, I just, I just liked it. Candles, you know, are kind of romantic and yeah. And uh, a lot of atmosphere, and, and yeah. it worked for me. I so love I've it. made that a part of part of my practice. I absolutely love it. So, so many things I love about the the practice that you have set for yourself. I'm reading um, a really great book. I had an author on my podcast. He's from the Salem, Portland area, um, and he is a psychologist. And he wrote The Crucible for Writers, and it's about meditation and mindfulness, and and you know the inner process. For writers, yeah. I'm going to bring him on the podcast for several episodes because it's just so great. And he talks about ritual, and I found yeah. that I I have a few rituals too that I do, um, not consistently. I, I need to get into the uh-huh. consistency of it. But I find it interesting that you use candlelight because I'm writing an Elizabeth the First era historical fiction, uh-huh. and so I yeah. often will shut everything down, work with candlelight too, because it does give me that atmosphere that we don't have, you know, in our world yeah. now, that it can transport me to that time pretty quickly, <laughs> you know? So, yeah, it, yeah, that's, that's yeah. very interesting. That works for you too. Uh, yeah, part it of it, the charm of it for me is I am writing on a laptop. Mm-hmm. So here I am in the dark with candles on and this <laughs> 21st 
century technology at my fingertips and I use the internet, you know, for research and so forth. And yet at the same time, I'm embracing this, uh, this uh, element from the past with the Mm -hmm. candlelight. Mm -hmm. And I like the, uh, the sense of being stretched across time that that gives me. Yeah, I I totally hear you. And I, for me, I also listen to music. I try to find some sort of music that is very calming in the background. My story has a lot of the ocean tied into it, you know, the waves and ocean. Uh-huh. So I tend to have music that is resemblance of that aspect. And it, it tends to just take me right. When I write the scenes of where my characters are near the ocean, it really feels alive to me as I'm writing them because I'm like, hearing uh, is, isn't that a great feeling? Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. It's, it's otherworldly, I would say. It's that moment as yeah. a writer when you're like, this is so almost spiritual. This is fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. And I think that's that's really uh, an important aspect of, of the writing life and one that maybe isn't talked about quite enough. I think there is, it, when you're transported like that, um, that's a feeling that's going to come through to readers. You may do a lot of rewriting on top of that feeling, but that initial impulse where you're really in the flow and you've, you know, you've got it going the way you want it to go. And then, you know, that may come and go as you work on a piece, but, um, and, but still there's some, something about that, uh, internal experience that's deep and spiritual that I think translates through, even through many, many edits and rewrites. Yeah, I I tend to agree. I I have read a lot of authors and gone back to try to find out how their writing process went. And I'm typically drawn to authors that write that have a similar sort of practice. You know, they listen to music or they have a sound, you know, something like that. So it's interesting how that, how I'm drawn to that as well. So Uh what a fun fun discussion. I love it. So um, my listeners kind of can tell where my mind is going. I'm definitely in the middle of thinking about um, that book that I've been reading about mindfulness. So I'd love to talk about that with other authors. So, so let's talk about your publication journey. That's what kind of started my podcast was um, when I decided, okay, I'm going to write, I'm going to publish a book. The industry changed drastically for in the last, you know, 10 years, 20 years since I looked at it a long time ago. And that's what podcast. I started asking authors, what did you do? How did you do it? Are you self-published? Blah, blah, blah. And found this whole world of awesome information, right? So I asked all the authors that come on, walk us through your journey. Are you self-published? Are you with a publishing house, a company? Kind of what, what's your, what's your, your publication? (laughs) Well, I have the very good fortune to have been published now twice by Forest Avenue Press, Mm -hmm. which is an indie press right here in Portland, Oregon. Uh, founded by Laura Stanfill. And oh, Laura. I know her name. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, Laura's a former student of mine, and so I knew that's how I knew her. And when she decided she was going to start a publishing company, I was close enough to her to be in the loop and hear about it. Um, she uh, determined early on that she was only going to publish novels. Mm-hmm. And as she was uh, going looking for her first title to publish, I got a hold of her and said, look, I don't have a novel, but I have this collection of short stories that are linked. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, there are 15 stories and characters recur from one story to another. And and there is this kind of sense. It's more of a portrait of a whole town than than a work that has a, a character or two that we might follow all the way through the character arc or the story arc. 
but it, you know, it's, it's novel. Like I, mm-hmm. as I said to her and she said, well, I, I said, do you want me to submit it? And she said, no, just send it to me. Mm-hmm. So I, I sent her a PDF of the whole work and, um, in the astonishingly short amount of time of five days, um, I got back this exuberant uh, <laughs> email from Laura. And if you haven't met Laura or don't know her, she is a very exuberant person, uh, full of enthusiasm for literature and writers and all things connected to publishing. And here's this, uh, you know, exuberant email saying, yes, I want to publish your book. So I just kind of lucked my way in. I didn't go through her normal submission process. Mm-hmm. Um, I have watched a lot of people get books published over the years, many, mm-hmm. many friends of mine. Mm-hmm. And I find there's almost always an element of luck involved. I think so, too. Um, yeah, that's what I'm hearing, I, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I knew the right person, mm-hmm. and I, I reached out uh, at the right time. I think it's an important part of the story is that I did reach out. Mm-hmm. I did ask, you know, mm-hmm. is this something you would be interested in, even though the published material, her call for submission, said novels. I thought, mm-hmm. well, mm-hmm. maybe there's something here, you know. Mm-hmm. Let's explore mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. So don't be shy. That mm-hmm. would be one of the lessons I learned. Um, from there, um, I was her first title. I got... Uh, just a tremendous amount of attention from her because um, I was her I was her initial project. She had nothing else to put her energy into other than, you know, she's a, a mom with two little girls and a husband and a housekeep and, and all of that sort of thing going on. But she has tremendous energy. And mm-hmm. um, we just had a lot of fun getting that first book out, the two of mm-hmm. us. My first time being published at Bookland, her first time publishing an author like this. Um, and then when it came time for the second book, I, again, asked her if she wanted to look at what I had been working on. She said, sure. And, uh, we proceeded from there. She looked at an earlier draft and said, yes, it needs work. Here's some things I want you to address. Mm-hmm. And off we went. And, what, a, and, uh, what an amazing partnership. I, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that your message, Steve, is so right on. Um, it's the number one thing that I am finding is that you can't be shy. You just have to ask. You're going to get a no or a yes, but hopefully a yes. Yeah. But you have to put yeah. yourself out there. Um, you have yeah. to be open and 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 just jump in with both feet and not be shy about it. So that's that's fantastic. Great message <laughs> for those. Yeah, the publishers are probably not going to come looking for you. Mm-mm, mm-mm. <laughs> that's only in the movies, right? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. just the way Doesn't it exist is. In reality yeah so true yeah. fantastic so tell tell the listeners your two titles that you have um and sure. and if you want to go into a little bit about the genre what what each title is about that would be fantastic and i'll make sure that we have your website on the show notes so that they can find you too as well sure so the first book was is called um a simplified map of the real world it is these 15 linked short stories they're all set in a small Timber town in the foothills of the Cascades, a town that I call Renata in in the book, um, and all the stories uh, have a theme of love in them in some way. Either I, I used to have a little elevator pitch for this. Um, uh, 
romantic love, familial love, love lost, love found, gay love, straight love, love lost, love found. So there's there's all these different ways that I look at love. And um, it's about small town life. It's about um, kind of the linkages between different people's lives that maybe might not be apparent on the surface. And it really does, I think, at the end of the day, give you a picture of this town as a place. It's almost like a book-length portrait of a place. It's uh, And certainly a, there's a great love of place in the writing for that book. Um, the second book, the new book, is called The Ale House at the End of the World. And this is a novel. Um, I like to tell people that a simplified map of the real world is, is pretty much grounded in the world as we know it. There's a couple of moments of fancy in it. There are a couple of ghosts who wander through stories, little touches like that. But it's pretty much the world as we know it. The Ale House at the End of the World is, is a wild fantasy that takes us to the Isle of the Dead on a quest. Um, it's a very classic kind of quest novel, a, a hero's journey kind of a novel. It is uh, the characters are uh, quite fanciful and different. Some of them are human, some of them are gods or demigods. Um, it turns out when we get to the Isle of the Dead that the Isle of the Dead is ruled by three six foot tall, shape shifting birds, uh, talking birds. They are a cormorant a pelican, and a crow. And things are just not what we expect when we get to the Isle of the Dead. Sounds so, absolutely brilliant. <laughs> I love it. Well, it's it's a lot of crazy fun. It is yeah. a comedy. Um, yeah. it, it does have some rather horrific moments in it here and there. There is some darkness in it. But overall, it's, it's uh, light in tone. Um, it's a bit risque at times. Mm-hmm. Um, it's full of uh, fanciful language, um, a lot of fun wordplay, and um, and also some fun references to contemporary pop culture. Oh, fantastic! So, Stephen, what was your inspiration if you had one for this particular the that work? Um, well, for the Ale out? House, <laughs> yeah, it was. It took me a long time to figure out what I was writing. I started out thinking I was writing a thousand word piece of flash fiction about this uh, work of art that I had that, mm. uh, with a picture of a, a catfish and it was a cutaway. You could see inside the fish and inside the fish were uh, a couple, three little men in uh, blue coveralls and they had a steering wheel and a gear lever, you know, mm. it was mm. kind of steampunky mm-hmm. and funny. And I just thought, oh, there's something there. And I kept trying to write about that and I couldn't get anything to go. Um, I'd come back to it every week or so for a couple of months. And, uh, finally one day in exasperation, I thought, well, men inside a fish, I went to the Bible and read the mm-hmm. book of Jonah. Yeah. That's what it, um, I thought of when you said that. I'm like, Oh, the book of Jonah. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, didn't really, nothing really hooked me there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got online to look for some commentary about the book of Jonah mm-hmm. and I stumbled onto the story of James Bartley. So James Bartley turned up in New York city in the 1880s with a story of having been swallowed by a whale when he was on a whaling voyage and he was, uh, off the coast of South America, very near the Falkland islands. Huh. 
And his story was of uh, they went out in the from the, the main whaling ship. You know, they would go out in the long boats with the harpoons to actually get the mm-hmm. whales. Mm-hmm. Very so dangerous. He was in the long, <laughs> yeah, very dangerous. Yeah. We're in Moby Dick territory mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. And he had uh, they had harpooned a whale. The whale had uh, submerged and then come up underneath their longboat and mm. uh, capsized it. And he uh, went overboard with everybody, and they all drowned. Uh, another longboat from the same whaling ship captured that very whale. They brought it on board, and as they began to butcher it out, they cut the gut open, and out came James Bartley, still alive, bleached uh, white, and... Uh, and babbling incoherently. Hmm. This story appeared in the New York papers on and off for uh, 10 years or more, like on a slow news day, they'd write just a little, you know, three inch sort of filler kind of article. And they would run this story over and over again. As I read about it online, I fairly quickly got to some historians who had looked at this story in the 1970s and they had thoroughly debunked it. There was no such uh, whaling voyage. Uh, James Bartley was on no such whaling ship. He probably made the whole thing up. It was a way to get some attention. Who knows? Um, but I thought, well, there's something there that I can do with that story. And so I just started imagining a guy swallowed by a whale. What would that be like? And that was the door that opened me into the novel. I, you know, all of a sudden it took off. I love it. Uh, You know, that's the part about the creative aspect for writers that people don't realize we can be triggered from just about anything. You know, your story that inspired you was, you know, debunked a a myth, basically, but it launched into a great novel. So I love it. You know, that's why for me. It was a plus that it had been debunked. Exactly. I didn't have to worry about history. Exactly. Yeah. Creative, yeah. Yeah, it's the same. Um, I tend to gravitate towards history. I'm a librarian by trade, and and so I I'm very big on um, firsthand accounts, things like that, documents and and photos and photographs really draw me in. So old photographs oh, yeah. draw me in, and I can sit there, and that's what I do for some um, writing prompts for myself. When I feel a little staked, and I'll pull out. I have a whole collection of old photos of families that I don't belong to. You know, I just have collected them over the years. Yeah. And I'll I'll write the story around that photograph, you know, or oh, yeah. and so I love to hear the inspiration of your book because it's it's fascinating how you got there. So why don't we set the stage for your reading um, of it and sure. share, share any more that you want to, building the character and the scene around for what you want to read. And um, as my my listeners know, I go quiet while you read, and I'll take us out at the end of the podcast. Okay. Well, I think what I'm going to do is just start at the beginning. Um, that way we don't need much in the way of setup. Uh, there is a brief prologue that I will read, and then uh, we'll just start into the beginning of the novel itself. Um, so it's the ale house at the end of the world. Um, it is divided up into book one, book two, and book three. Book one is called The Rise of King Crow. Here's the prologue. This is an old story. A story of a tyrant and a rebellion, of monsters and humans, of love and death. Know this, there are creatures who travel back and forth 
from the spirit world to the land of the living. There are moments when things both sacred and mundane slip the bounds of time and pass through from one side of the mortal veil to the other. A breath of song, an ancient incantation, a blade, a bucket, a silver chain. Fate demands that it be so and plays an endless game of gods and goddesses, of regents and rebels, of lawyers, of of lovers and fools. I'm going to redo that sentence. Fate demands that it be so and plays an endless game of gods and goddesses, of regents and rebels, of lovers and fools. The coin is tossed, spinning life and death through the air, and here, as the fire burns low and the hour grows late, the telling begins. The fisherman lived alone at the edge of the sea, in a shack beneath the shade of the tallest shore pine for leagues, on a bluff above a shallow cove. All his days he had worked the sea as a sailor and a carpenter on ships both great and small, and as a fisherman, gill netting for the fishmongers in the portside markets, or trailing a line from his skiff to feed only himself. He had sailed all the seven seas and sailed seven more seas beyond those, and he had seen many things. Tattooed on his arms were the names of ships he had sailed and of sailors with whom he had weathered storms and escaped from monsters of the deep. On his chest, he bore the likeness of his beloved, her face covered over now with curls of gray hair. He stood watching the waves. In his hands were a letter and a silver chain. The sea was calm that day, and light glanced in swift patches as the waves rose and broke. A thing of beauty indeed, but the fisherman had no eyes for beauty just then. The sea in front of him was thick with fish, and for that he should be thankful. But the letter in his hands had taken from him all sense of what was good about his simple life. The letter had appeared on the sand in front of his shack that morning, with no footprints leading to it, nor from it, as if it had fallen from the sky. The words were the words of his beloved, as told to her eldest son from her deathbed. And before she died, she had taken the silver chain from round her neck. Send it to him, she'd said, and tell him I waited. Tell him he is my one true love. Tell him I forgave him long ago and that I will wait for him on the Isle of the Dead. He had been marooned here on this empty stretch of beach some several years, and he had given up all hope of making the arduous journey back to his beloved. It was here he would live out his meager life, or so had he thought. He put the silver chain round his neck. Fate was calling to him, telling him to find his way back to the woman he loved. He spread his arms, and he trembled in the whole of his body as tears fell from his eyes, and he turned his face to the heavens. I surrender, he shouted. Do with me as you will. 
in answer, the waves kept breaking, lapping one over the other on the wet sand at his feet. The gulls cried their shrill cries as they rode the sea breezes above him, scouting for fish. The wind blew across his bare chest and reveled the wisps of hair on his head. To be a fisherman was to be patient, and if he had learned one thing in his years on the earth, it was to know how to wait for the answer without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. He felt the rise and fall of his chest. He hoped to hear the voice of his beloved call to him from out of the wind, but he heard only the shush of the waves breaking on the sand. Tiny crabs scuttled back and forth with the lap of the waves. The wind died down. A squadron of pelicans gathered down the beach from him, milling about, clucking and croaking to one another, gradually working their way closer until some were less than an oar length away. The one closest regarded him with its yellow eye, tilting its head from side to side. It bore a pine twig in its bill, freshly torn from one of the shore pines. A drop of pitch glistened on the torn end of the twig. Ah, thus came the message. If he were to go to the Isle of the Dead, he would need something to light his way. He must prepare himself. One by one, the pelicans turned to face the waves until the whole squadron stood together, pointing at the sea with their bills striped red and blue. He heard the sound of human speech in their avian voices. This way, they croaked. This way. The frigate bird had watched from his perch in the shore pine since before dawn, and when the fisherman went to weed the meager patch of maize behind his shack, the frigate bird swooped down low and dropped the letter with the silver chain folded within it in front of the fisherman's door. Then he flew back to his perch to bide his time while events played themselves out, for he did not wish to be seen. Not just yet. A great deal, he suspected, depended on what the fisherman did next. If the fisherman took the bait, he had only to oversee the beginning of the fisherman's voyage, and for this he had prepared well. The loom was dressed, as it were, the warp in place and ready to receive the weft. When he was done, he would return to the shore and find a celebratory mug of ale. There was a chicheria in Shankay, some 60 leagues north, where a passable ale was served alongside the local chicha. But if memory served, there was a true alehouse in the port city of Shimbote, some 70 leagues farther on. He'd fallen in with a pirate there once who'd bought him several mugs of ale and then tried to slit his throat so he could cut him for dinner. Men were always thinking that a bird of his size would make a tasty roast. He'd left the man clawed and bloodied, his cheek marked for life with a four-toed scrawl, and he'd stolen his purse of doubloons for good measure. He was, as he freely admitted to himself, a piratical bird. As he had brought the letter from the Spice Islands to the fisherman, nothing had given him more pleasure than the several times he'd stopped to see bent on robbing him. Beings such as himself still walked the earth, but they were rare, 
and a six-foot-tall frigate bird who strode into an alehouse with a spyglass and a pistola stuck into his belt, and who said, Avast there, ye blackguards! Just not snatch that letter tucked into me belt, or I'll put a ball for me pistola right between your beady little eyes. Well, that was a bird who put a fright into a horse son's heart, the likes of which he had never felt before. And now, dear reader, we pause for a footnote to explain the teropsy. The teropsy, dear reader, who are called also the spinners, the morai, the mokash, the norns, the desir, and many other names, are the weavers of fate. They are a kind of immortal jellyfish. Their number uncountable, their origin so ancient as to be unknown, and they sort all that is out of all that might be. They are unknown in the land of the living, except by their many contradictory legends, but you may trust this account of them to be accurate in every detail. And now, dear reader, we return to our story. The Teropsi had given the frigate bird a long life, and during it he'd killed men when he had to, though mostly in his own defense. He had stolen what he needed when he needed it, and while he preferred to steal from those who were themselves greedy and had too much, this was no hard and fast rule, and he was not above doing whatever his own survival required. He had cheated fools, for there were many who could be cheated upon in the land of the living, with no one ever the wiser until it was too late. But he had never cheated the Teropsi. He was their servant, and always had been. He did what was asked of him, for the Teropsi had mothered him into being, and they had given him special license to be the brigand he was. Ages went by when they asked nothing of him. When they did ask for his services, he was given his tasks only one or two at a time, lest his own foreknowledge interfere with the weaving of their pattern. Now the fisherman came back from weeding his maize and found the letter. He searched the sand for footprints, which made the frigate bird chuckle, as there were none. Then the fisherman opened the letter and out poured the silver chain, so finely made that it flowed like water into his hand. He put the chain round his neck, and the frigate bird's eyes were keen enough that he could see the fisherman's tears welling up. I'm going to do that sentence over again. <laughs> he put the chain round his neck, and the frigate bird's eyes were keen enough that he could see the fisherman's tears welling up. The fisherman looked up at the sky, his arms spread, and then out to sea. Ha! thought the frigate bird. The letter has done its work. He waited the rest of the day on his perch, enjoying a well-earned rest from all the flying he had done to get there. The fisherman made preparations for a sea voyage, honing his knife, checking the sail and the oars for his skiff, and gathering pitch to make pitch balls, which he then threaded on the silver chain. The frigate bird watched the sunset, which ended with a green flash of light as the last bit of the sun set below the horizon. A sign, he thought, of good fortune ahead. The fisherman 
went into his shack to sleep. Best enjoy this respite, the frigate bird thought, while it lasts. And I'm going to stop there. Absolutely fantastic, Steve. I am captivated. I think my listeners will be as well. So wonderful. Yeah. What a great way to get us started into the story. So wonderful. So before we go, I forgot to ask, Stephen, can you share yeah. with, with some of our aspiring authors that are listening to this and now they're just in love with your storytelling, give us um, two tips for aspiring authors um, uh, as they are on their journey for writing and, and publishing. Well, um, I've talked a little bit about finding your own way to be a writer. That's a good one. Um, for this book, once I got it going, I had to learn to trust my own vision. Mm-hmm. So I had a vision that was pretty, pretty wild and crazy and not like anything that I had ever written before and not like much that I have read before. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, as it, as I developed it, I gained the confidence to really believe in it. And when I ran into that sort of puzzled look you'd get when you told somebody at a party what you were working on, they'd, <laughs> you know, they'd seen the first book and, and they, they, they're kind of like, you're working on what? Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I had to learn to, um, to trust my own vision. That I, you know, I was I was on to something, and it wasn't like what I had written before, but it was pretty darn good. Mm-hmm. So believe in your vision. That's one thought I have, and then the other one is just um, perseverance. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got to you've got to sit down and do the work, and um, you got to show up. It doesn't mean that every day is wonderful. It certainly is not, mm-hmm. um, but. You, I guess this, the, the key skill is you have to learn to live with your own bad writing until it gets better. It is so much easier to fix a sentence that is not quite right than it is to try to write the perfect sentence in the first place. Mm. Perfection shuts us down. Mm-hmm. If we just say, well, this is what I can do right now, uh, to quote one of my great uh, writing mentors, not that I was a student of his, but William Stafford mm-hmm. uh, told us um, he didn't believe in writer's block. He said the secret was to lower your standards and keep writing. Hmm. So if it's not going well, just lower your standards and keep writing. Come back to it the next day or the week after, whenever you get back to it, and you'll find a way to make it better. Oh. In the meantime, you just have to learn to let go of, oh, I know it's not perfect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it's going to get better. Oh, Steve, thank you so much. I'm taking all that, those two pieces of advice in today. So thank you so much. It's, it's very valuable for me as I'm working on my first novel. Um, and I hope my listeners as well um, will hear that advice. So listeners, if you uh, love what you heard, go onto my show notes, find Steve, um, reach out to him, let him know you heard him on the podcast, buy his book, <laughs> let him know. Yeah. And, um, and Steve, we thank you so much for coming in. Hey, when you write your, your third book, we'll bring you back on. That's terrific. I look forward to it. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we did. Follow us on social media and sign up for our newsletter where you can be entered automatically each month to win a signed free copy of a book from an author that's appeared on the podcast. 
You can find out more at our website, www.squishpin.com. And finally, if you're an author in the Pacific Northwest and you would like to appear on the show, you can find out more on our website. So until next week, I hope you enjoy the journey. This is Vicki J. Carter signing off.